according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent, be, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Join me, if you would, in Proverbs 21. We return to where we were a week ago. Proverbs chapter 21. We've been looking at the wicked as uh, the wicked have a lamp in verse 4. And uh, the wicked actually have five items that are mentioned here in this chapter. In verse 4 they have a lamp. In verse 7 they have violence. And we'll be looking at that here this morning. The violence of the wicked will drag them away. All of these expressions are uh, in, the, in the Hebrew structure of things, we have an of the pattern related to a particular noun that's connected with a particular group of people. In this case, the, the particular group of people are the wicked in all these cases. And they have a lamp, they have violence, they have souls, they have houses, and they have sacrifices. We see the lamp in verse 4, the soul in, uh, the violence in verse 7, the soul in verse 10, the house in verse 12, and the sacrifice in verse 27. And so by the time we get through looking at these five principles of the wicked, it's, it's going to be a good study. And I'm kind of curious to see how chapter 21 puts these all together in the way, in the way that it does. Before we do get started this morning, let's take a moment for silent prayer and adjust our thinking. If some of us are maybe a little tired because we stayed up last night, then uh, let's go ahead and call upon our Father's faithfulness to bless our time today, shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you this morning thankful for grace and truth, rejoicing in your faithfulness, Father, to, uh, to bless our study. We thank you that the Word of God does not depend on how smart we are to figure these things out, but how faithful you are to uh, open our eyes, to teach us, to show us. You are a Father who loves us, who loves to teach us, who loves to demonstrate your will. And so, Father, we, uh, we come before you this morning ready to receive more of your fatherly love. So open our eyes, open our hearts, bless our study, Father, we thank you. And we do pray for our nation, Father. The results are still not known from last night, but it's in your hands and we, we rest in faith knowing that you are so faithful. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so uh, dealing with uh, the wicked. And in our outline we have come to point five, which should be slide six. And there it is. The wicked are referenced eight times in Proverbs 21. So a total of eight times. I've mentioned five of them already because there's five of these places where the wicked uh, possess something. They have something of the wicked. And uh, in, uh, you see them in, in verse 4, 7, 10, 12, and 27. The other usages, including verse 18, verse 29, and the second usage of the term wicked that's found in verse 12, those are just additional uses of wicked beyond the construction we're looking at that have the of the format. All right, And so you see it in verse 12, um, you have the house of the wicked, and that's the of the format that we have with, uh, with house and then assigned to the wicked. And then the second use is turning the wicked to ruin. And this is a, a description of what it is they can anticipate, what it is that God will do with them as they continue to, uh, to function in that house. Likewise in uh, verse 18. In verse 18, the wicked is a ransom for the righteous 
and the treacherous in the, is in the place of the upright. So that's another use of the wicked. It doesn't have the of the uh, formula, it doesn't have that structure, and so it's not really one of the five that I'm centering on here in point five. Uh, we'll deal with that when we get to that verse. In this point, I'm only looking at the five uses of the of the, so that we're actually going to, we don't have to teach verse 7, 10, uh, 27. When we get to these later places, we'll just uh, make note of the fact we've already taught it, we've already covered the material, and, uh, and take it from there. All right, so last week we talked about the lamp, the lamp of the wicked. And this is, uh, this is used, uh, any lamp, any human lamp is used of, uh, as an idiom for, for being physically alive. The fact that there's something inside of us that animates us. And uh, in the Hebrew poetry it's called a lamp. And uh, by the grace of God, we, when the lamp goes out, then we're physically dead. That's the, the description. And, um, but in this verse, it's curious that the lamp of the wicked is sin. Forgot to get my Bible running here. Proverbs 21.4. Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked is sin. So when you consider what that inner light is, what the inner spark is, what, what is it that animates a person? What is it that keeps a person alive? Uh, for the wicked, it's said to be sin itself that sin animates them. And this is uh, part of uh, being a fallen being in a fallen world that uh, Adam's curse upon his descendants, upon his offspring, is the sin nature that, uh, that we all have that occupies this body of death. And it serves to animate the wicked. This is why we want to confess our sins. This is why we want to take off the old man and put on the new man. We want to walk in the light because uh, the Holy Spirit gives us His desires so that we don't do the things that the, the sin nature wants us to do. And we have to choose on a daily basis which one we're going to serve. Are we going to serve God the Holy Spirit or are we going to serve the sin nature within us? Because the, uh, the lamp of the wicked is sin and we, we've got to be aware of that. So uh, it does stem from satanic imitation. It, does, uh, it doesn't just feed itself for no particular focus or direction. I think uh, Ephesians 2 is very clear in this regard. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked. Understand, this is, a, this is the, the bulk of humanity. This is, uh, you know, the wicked outnumber the righteous when it comes to uh, different things. Broad is the path that leads to destruction and narrow is the gate that leads to life. So, you know, if you're counting votes or trying to count, you know, how many have this worldview and how many have that worldview, uh, passages like this should make things pretty clear. So uh, the dead walking according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And that's the day and age in which we live. We better realize pretty quickly that we're uh, aliens and strangers. We're the pilgrims in a world that's not our home. And uh, the worldview that surrounds us is quite hostile, actually. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. And that's uh, the description there. So this lamp that animates the wicked is the sin nature. It does stem from uh, satanic imitation. Every fallen creature in Adam is, is following in that legacy of Satan who said, indeed did God say, and casting doubt upon the revealed word of God and uh, leading humanity in, uh, in an alternate path. Job 41.34 calls him the king over the sons of pride, and that's exactly what it is. All right, so that's the lamp of the wicked.
We move on to talk about the violence of the wicked. The violence of the wicked from verse 7. I want to start just by observing what verse 7 itself says and then we can take the other passages as well. Proverbs 21, 7. The violence of the wicked will drag them away because they refuse to act with justice. All right, and so there is a consequence, and it's the violence that does this. So the violence is the stated subject of the verb, and the dragging is the, uh, is the activity. And the, uh, the wicked are both the subject and the object, if you think about it, but it's their violence that's doing the dragging, and it's they themselves that are being drugged. They are dragged away. So the violence of the wicked drags them away, or carries them away, or sweeps them away. It ends up being that when you submit to your sin nature because you're serving your sin nature, then uh, notice how quickly it does turn to violent. By, by definition, it is violent. The nature of evil is, uh, brings harm to others. And uh, we're going to see that, I think, in these verses here, especially when we talk about Hamas and we talk about Shod and we talk about the principles of, of, wi- of evil, not just wickedness, but evil and the harm that it brings to others because evil doesn't care. When you're, when you're worshiping evil, other people get harmed and, and you're fine with that. The harm upon others is, is, uh, is, is worth it. You, know, you don't even consider it. You don't even think about it because of the idol that you're serving. And uh, it's, just, it's, it's awful to consider. And it's the antithesis of sacrificial love. It's the antithesis of, of shepherding. It's the exact opposite of what we're called to do in love and serving one another and, and seeking their benefit and, and building them up in these uh, particular issues. All right. So again, just the, the plain reading of verse 7, the violence of the wicked will drag them away. And uh, don't think that you can play with sin or you can play with this and, and not be harmed by it. That uh, you become the practitioner of evil through the exercise of this violence and, uh, and, and you're carried away. Similar to what James talks about when, uh, when we fall into sin, when we submit to the temptations of sin. In James chapter 1 and verse 14 we should be familiar with. We've mentioned it several times. And the nature of sin here described as a process Here we go. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself does not tempt anyone. So we understand that God's not the tempter, Satan is. And that's uh, one of his titles, is uh, the tempter. And uh, each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Satan's job is easy in some respects because every human being that he uh, sets out to tempt already has built in uh, a vulnerability. We have a built-in weakness with a sin nature that indwells us. And so it uh, kind of makes his job easier. Uh, really the hardest job Satan ever had was right at the beginning when he approached Eve because she was sinless. And, uh, but she fell for it. She bought into it. And then uh, Adam knew full well what he was doing. He was not deceived, but he submitted willfully anyway. And uh, after that it got easy because all of Adamic humanity since then has a built-in propensity to Uh, to this lust. So each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Two separate actions. And and I hope we consider these things because the enticement is only part of the story. The enticement, and I think we know what enticement is, right? Because we know what it means to be tempted. We know what an enticement is. We know, you know, uh, you know, 
other words like seduce and, and you know we understand why sin is so attractive and so there's a there's an impulse and there's a seduction and there's a there's an enticement and uh, and our carnality looks at that and we lick our chops and we say hmm that looks tasty and uh, and that's the enticement but what's worse than the enticement is the carrying away portion of it because it's one thing to simply be enticed I think Jesus was tempted. Satan said, turn these stones to bread. Satan said, you know, show yourself to the world. And Satan threw those temptations out there and they were enticing. It's not a sin to be tempted. It's not a sin to be enticed. But when you allow that enticement to carry you along, to carry you away, that's when you're, you're, you're playing with fire. Okay? And uh, so here comes the enticement. And so what you need to do is immediately reject it. Apply Scripture. Turn, it, turn your back from it. Uh, you know, fear God and turn away from evil. And so when that enticement comes, don't deny that it's enticing, but just simply take every thought captive in obedience to Christ Jesus and turn away from it. Confess it. Turn it to the Father. You don't have to necessarily confess it, but make it a prayer item. Take it to the Father and say, Father, this is a temptation. I want nothing to do with it. And, uh, and stay in fellowship. Ask for that blood of Christ to continuously keep on cleansing you from all, from all defilements. But when you, when you get carried away with it, now Proverbs is talking about this, James is talking about this, when you're carried away with it, how soon does that happen? Well, how long do you spend thinking about it? Okay? So if you're going to be thinking about it, if you're going to dwell on it, if you're going to let your mind dwell on these things, that the Bible says don't let your mind dwell on these things. But if you're going to think about it like, wow, that would be fun. Or, well, if I did it, would I get caught? <laughs> or if I did it, how bad would it really be? Or how many times can I do it before I get caught? Or, well, you know, yeah, okay, I can do it, but then I can just confess afterwards, it'll be all right. And all these things, you know what you're doing? You're playing with it, that's right. You're already making the choice. Actually, the attitude wants to do it. And you're trying to talk yourself into making the choice of doing it. And the attitude already wants to. So I like the fact that then you get to verse 15. It says, when lust has conceived... Wow, okay. The book of James takes this whole process and puts it into a conception pregnancy type of, uh, of a scope. All right? When lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And you realize, you know, conception is a process. And it requires mixing of elements, right? It requires seed has to hit an egg and it has to, it requires choices that you're making. And then even the fact that there's a conception and then there's a birth. All right? That shows you that time has gone by, at least nine months, okay, for humanity. There's a, there's a process by which we finally do the deed. And I'm telling you, Scripture says you've been carnal for a long time before the baby's ever birthed, all right? Because you were carnal before the conception. You were carnal at the conception and then in the mindset that was carried away. That's how the conception happened. Anyway, what am I talking about? <laughs> you know, there's any number of applications for this. You know, any number of applications whereby, you know, when, when, uh, when a child comes to tell their parents they're in trouble and, well, what were the steps that got you to that point? 
Okay? Or a church member comes to the pastor to describe that he's in trouble. And well, what were the steps that brought you to that point? Okay? Because you've been making these wrong decisions for a long, long time, getting carried away. And this is what evil does. All right, so shrink this back down again. The violence of the wicked drags them away. And if you say, well, I don't have any violence, I would just ask, are you wicked? <laughs> because even the nice ones, even, uh, and, and we talk about nice, and, and here's the problem. See, we, ha- we inject a human personality trait of niceness and uh, as if that has value in anything, all right? And it becomes a standard for spirituality. It becomes a whole centerpiece of, of churches and denominations and theological movements, the theology of nice, all right? If you're wicked, you have uh, a lamp, you have violence, you have a house, you have a soul, all the things that this chapter is telling you you have. If you're wicked, you have these things. We've got to be clear on this. All right, so now the word violence that we have here in verse 7, as we come back to Proverbs 21.7, it's one of two words that we're going to kind of combine in a dual word study here this morning uh, because there's a sense, and this is where uh, you actually have to go to more than one vocabulary expression to, to get the sense of this, of this idea as the Old Testament presents it. And so we have both Hamas and Shod that uh, we'll be dealing with. Here in our verse today, the, the uh, violence of the wicked is, is the showed, the showed of the wicked. But showed is, uh, is only used 26 times, Hamas is used 60 times, and you really have to combine both of those expressions to get the fullness of what the book of Proverbs and what the Old Testament presents for uh, this kind of harm, for this kind of violence. So showed as Strong's number 7701, pretty late alphabetically. Have you noticed that, that the Strong's numbers get larger the later in the alphabet you get? That's because uh, the, all these words have been alphabetized from one to whatever, and uh, that's why it works out that way. So 7701, the, uh, the, the, the sheen is towards the end of the Hebrew alphabet. The only letter after sheen is, is Tav. And then uh, Hamas, number 2555. That's earlier in the alphabet. All right, so Hamas and Shod. These are the terms that we're dealing with. And this is a sense, too, where um, it's useful, and and not always. um, In fact, the most common thing I I tend to do in in, uh, the teaching is stressing a single word or stressing a family of words. Because it may be that there's a a verb and an adjective and noun, and they're all in the same family. They all have the uh, the cognate forms, and and so sometimes the the root is is more significant than the word itself. Here, though, it's uh, they're totally different roots. They're totally different uh, word families, uh, but they are the way that they're used is very frequently together, combined, or, or they're placed in a in a parallelism. And so I'm going to show you what I'm talking about here. This too is satanic imitation. Just as with the lamp, just as with other things that we're going to see, satanic imitation in all of these. Let's start with Genesis 6. We understand 6, 7, and 8 is the flood. We understand the days of Noah and what was happening here in the, uh, in the uh, tenth generation from, uh, from Adam. It didn't take long, all right? 
And you know, right away with sin entering into the world and Cain murdering Abel and then the, the cultures that derive from that, um, we see uh, where we get to by the time we're in Genesis 6. The earth was corrupt in the sight of God and the earth was filled with violence. In this case, it's not showed. In this case, it's Hamas. Yep, it's Hamas, all right? So the earth was corrupt in the sight of God and the earth was filled with violence. Understand, this is more than just a social problem. This is more than just um, a, uh, a geopolitical complaint or something that a society says, we need to do something about this because our culture seems to have grown violent. The violence in the world is actually defiling to the world. We find that the bloodshed and the violence stains a land. It produces a curse upon the land. And it, it's, uh, it, it's, a, it's an anger issue in the sight of God. When God looks upon the Hamas, it's, uh, it's displeasing. It's a problem. So God looked upon the earth and behold it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. And God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I'm about to destroy them with the earth. And so there's consequences for this violence, this Hamas. It has uh, wreaked damage upon the world itself, and the the creator of the world is, is holding us accountable for the choices we make. We're his stewards, and when we make a mess of this place, we're going to be held accountable for the, uh, the pollution, okay? And I'm not talking about the physical pollution that the environmentalists are typically talking about. We're talking about the fornication, the, the violence, the murder, the, uh, all the bloodshed, the innocent blood that shed. All of these things defile the land. The Bible talks about pollution, but it's talking about sin. It's talking about this wickedness, including the violence. So we have... Um, we have it here. Again, it's Hamas that's used there in verse 11 and in verse 13. The earth was corrupt in the sight of God. The earth was filled with violence. And, and part of what God has designed is under the laws of the divine establishment, we're going to be studying this in, in the Genesis series, God has designed protection against the violence. That He's provided systems in place whereby um, you have uh, parents protecting children, you have husbands protecting wives, and you have government protecting the, the keeping the peace, protecting the, the peace of a, of a civilization. And when that breaks down, when it breaks down at all these different levels, you end up with the consequences you end up with. And then God pronounces His judgment upon that, upon that group. Anyway, so stay tuned for that. I think we'll have uh, plenty of things to talk about there. All right. Something else we'll consider too when it says the whole earth was corrupt, all flesh, when we understand that, you know, we think we're a remnant now. What happens when we're a remnant of a remnant? What happens when we're a remnant of a remnant of a remnant? If in fact the uh, Noah's family was the last pure Adamic human family, how much of the genetic intrusion was happening with the Nephilim, with the angels, with the, the corruption of the Adamic stock? And if Satan would have been successful there to pollute even Noah's family, then what redeemer could have ever possibly come to uh, how could there have ever been a second Adam to, uh, to undo the damage of the first Adam if, uh, if all of Adamic humanity was corrupted. Anyway, it's something to consider because I think he attempted that before the flood 
and he's going to attempt it again in the tribulation. That there's going to be, uh, I think the mark of the beast is going to be something genetic. And it's going to be something that will fundamentally alter the nature of, of, uh, of humanity. In any event, let's look at uh, Genesis 49.5. Simon, Simeon and Levi are brothers. This is uh, Jacob at the end of his life. Israel is pronouncing the prophetic blessings upon his tribes, upon his sons. Uh, Reuben was the firstborn. He was addressed separately uh, prior to this. You see that up there in uh, verses 3 and 4. Reuben, you were my firstborn. We discussed this a couple weeks back. My might and the beginning of my strength, preeminent in dignity, preeminent in power, uncontrolled as water. You shall not have preeminence. Remember when we talked about the power of water, how destructive it could be if it's not channeled appropriately? Because he went up to your father's bed, you defiled it, he went up to my couch. So in this case it was his sexual immorality, it was his adultery, it was his uh, defilement of, of Jacob's bed. Notice that, again, it's not just a, a sin, it's not just a, 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 an interpersonal issue between people. It is defiling. You defiled. And uh, the God of holiness pronounces judgment on this. Then Simeon and Levi. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are implements of violence. Hamas. Let my soul not enter into their counsel. Let not my glory be united with their assembly, because in their anger they slew men, and in their self-will they lamed oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So that's the judgment upon the next two sons. This is why Judah, the fourth-born son, becomes the, becomes the, uh, the reigning tribe. This is how the, the scepter is given to Judah, which you see in verses 8 and following. And uh, the lion's whelp and the, the uh, scepter shall not depart from Judah. So the prophecy there. All right. Anyway, but the issue we're studying today is the, uh, the wrath, the uh, in implements of violence, the Hamas. And this is either showed or, uh, no, this also is Hamas. All right. And so violence. If you're going to use violence if, uh, if you're going to stir up street violence, if you're going to use uh, this kind of societal chaos to uh, accomplish your objectives, uh, the God of peace sees that, all right? And uh, that, that too defiles a land and is a recognition of God's judgment upon our society. Let's go to Job. Now Job chapter 5, verses 21 and 22 Just pick up our context here. Um, this is still within the uh, speech of Eliphaz. All right. Anytime you're in Job, you've got to go to the top of the chapter and remind yourself who's talking. So in chapter 4, it's uh, chapter 5 continues. There's no change of speaker. All right. So you go to the top of chapter 4 and you find out that it's Eliphaz that's speaking. You get down to chapter 5, it's still Eliphaz that's speaking. And um, there's elements of wisdom in all these men, even though they're wrong about condemning Job, there's elements of wisdom that we glean from these things. So uh, simply notice um, 
Call now, is there anyone who will answer you? To which of the holy ones will you turn? They have an, an awareness of the angels. They have an awareness of, of uh, God's agents in the invisible realm that watch over the affairs of men. And I don't know why he uses the phrase call to them. We don't pray to angels, but maybe it shows you uh, Eliphaz and his problematic theology. But anger slays the foolish man and jealousy kills the simple. I have seen, you have idioms like that that show that you're substituting the Word of God with your own experience. Anyway, talking about the wicked and uh, aspects there. Verse 8, as for me, I would seek God. I would place my cause before God. So Eliphaz is recommending that Job, why don't you just confess? Why don't you just seek God? Why don't you just throw yourself on His mercy? And uh, so forth. All right. He, fr- he frustrates the plotting of the shrewd. He captures the wise by their own shrewdness. He's not wrong about these things. He's just wrong when he uh, assigns wickedness to Job. All right, verse 17. Behold, how happy is the man whom God reproves. Do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. He's telling Job to, uh, you know, accept it. It's your, it's your punishment. It's your discipline. Learn from it. Repent. For he inflicts pain, he gives relief. He wounds and his hands also heal. From six troubles he will deliver you, even seven. Evil will not touch you. In famine he will redeem you from death. In war, from the power of the sword. So this is Eliphaz trying to be encouraging to Job, but it's no encouragement at all because Job has nothing to confess. Job is not guilty of, of the sin that Eliphaz is accusing him of. You will be hidden from the scourge of the tongue. You will not be afraid of the violence when it comes. You will laugh at violence and famine and you will not be afraid of wild beasts. So, you know, if we forget for the moment this is Eliphaz speaking these words, if we forget the moment that he's wrong in, in, uh, in criticizing Job or telling Job what Job needs to do, let's just take these words at face value and understand the Holy Spirit is inspiring them in our wisdom literature and ask ourselves, are these principles true? Does God take care of His children? Of course He does. And we can connect this with other principles as we find them in Psalms and Proverbs and passages of Scripture. And and we can say, well, Eliphaz, you're not wrong about this. That um, God uh, knows how to rescue the wicked, I mean the, the righteous. He knows how to get Lot out of Sodom. He knows how to get Noah out you know, through the flood. He knows how to, uh, to preserve His holy ones from, from the violence, laughing at violence and famine. If you have divine viewpoint and faith rest, then uh, you know the, the, the headlines in the newspaper don't bother you. Okay? This is really an interesting morning to be preaching a message like this. Okay? And who knows whatever uh, what the Lord's going to do with our nation. God's in charge. Are we going to laugh at violence and famine? You will not be afraid of wild beasts. You think those wild beasts roaming the streets are always zoological? No, that's right. Many of them are anthropological. (laughs) And the Bible calls them beasts because that's how they live, that's how they they pray. P-R-E-Y, okay? They're they're, um, predators. And uh, they roam the streets in their predatory manner. Bible calls them beasts. We can laugh. Just like the, the virtuous woman in Proverbs 31, she can smile at the future. 
and uh, we all should be. Proverbs 21, 7, that's our text today. And then Proverbs 24, 2. Move this to the top so I can still see my list of verses. There we go. Proverbs 24, 2. Let's just look at verses 1 and 2. Do not be envious of evil men, nor desire to be with them, for their minds devise violence and their lips talk of trouble. This is more than just, uh, you know, choose you this day whom you will serve kind of a thing because when you get caught up with this crowd, when you get involved in their schemes, you're going to be swept away. You're going to be carried away. Their minds devise violence and their lips talk of trouble. That's the, that's the, uh, the wickedness, the shows, the same show that we have in Proverbs 21 we have here in Proverbs 24.1. Isaiah 53.9. Anybody quote it before I hit enter? His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. This is our Savior, right? And, uh, and the, the suffering servant who went to the cross, our sins were laid on him. He didn't deserve this. He had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. That tandem, Satan was a liar from the beginning, he was a murderer from the beginning. This tandem of, of satanic deceit and violence. If you find that uh, there's a political movement that blends untrue statements with, uh, with, with public violence, um, you know what you're dealing with. Alright? So keep your armor on, pray to the Lord, and Trust that in His faithfulness He's going he's gonna to bring us through uh, whatever season He's going to bring us through. Ezekiel 28.16 hmm. Ezekiel 28 What's this chapter about? The fall of Satan. Let a man take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord, you had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the barrel, the onyx, the jasper. This is a high priestly garment. These stones match the priestly ephod that Aaron wore. The gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. This is not a human being that was born. This is an angelic being that was created. You were the Messiah cherub, the anointed cherub who covers. And I placed you there. So this is the, the role of Satan from his, his created perfection and the job that he was assigned to do as the Messiah cherub. You were on the holy mountain of God and walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. So he was blameless from the day of his creation until he became a sinner. Only angels are described this way, fallen angels. The only human beings that could be described this way are Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were created 
they were created blameless, they were created righteous, and then when they sinned, they became unrighteous. So either this text is talking to Adam and Eve, which is silly, or this text is addressing an anointed cherub, the Messiah cherub, which is the clear, uh, correct interpretation. All right. Then it says, so how was this unrighteousness found in him? How did he become a sinner? By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. It started with a mental attitude. It started with the violence. The recognition that not only was he beautiful, not only was he uh, wise, he was powerful. And he could take what he wanted. Internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God. Notice the violence carries a consequence. The violence has a, uh, in the, uh, it's, it's inappropriate in the sense of holiness, and so he's cast as profane. That's the, that's the opposite of holy. Okay? Profane. From the mountain of God. I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. For your heart was lifted up because of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. The, the uncorrupted wisdom would have never been internally filled with violence. But he corrupted his wisdom. So I have cast you to the ground. I have put you before kings that they may see you. By the multitude of your iniquities. You see? You get carried away and before you know it it's not just one sin. Now you've been locked into a pattern of sin. Now you've been trapped. Now you've got a whole history of one sin after another sin after another sin after another sin. In fact, it is so carried you away you can't remember the last time you were in fellowship. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. This is what's going to get us to the fifth of the possessions of the wicked. They have sacrifices and they're using religion as a cover for their own profit and the pursuits of their own wickedness. You profaned your sanctuaries, therefore I have brought fire from the midst of you it has consumed you and I have turned you to ashes on the earth in the eyes of all who see you. And so really the creation of Adamic humanity was to put the fallen angels on display and to resolve this angelic conflict in a way that glorifies uh, our Redeemer. Alright, well, there we have it. We have the violence of the wicked. We also have the soul of the wicked. The soul of the wicked desires evil. This is uh, Proverbs 21.10. The soul of the wicked desires evil. His neighbor finds no favor in his eyes. The soul of the wicked. You know, how much damage gets done with prolonged exposure to this wickedness? Say, well, doesn't he have the same soul he's always had? Isn't his soul the same as my soul? I mean, you know, uh, humanity procreates and humanity produces body, soul, and spirit. And and so, um, you know, you're telling me there's something intrinsically changed about the soul? Yes. The soul is not a static thing. The soul is constantly changing like the body is constantly changing. We're aging, we're growing, we're we're uh, 
casting off dead cells, we're, we're producing new cells. The, it's in a constant change. It's in a constant linear direction. Same thing with the soul. We're either feeding it and nourishing it with the Word of God and blessing it, bless the Lord, O oh my soul, or we're damaging it. We are uh, producing uh, impact upon our soul. Desiring evil and reflecting a complete absence of grace. That's the B part of verse 10. His neighbor finds no favor in his eyes. You know, once you've damaged your soul to this point, uh, you're just intrinsically, you're just not capable of of producing or or functioning in any kind of a grace way. This, This damaged soul has no grace whatsoever. Not even able to. All right. So start with desiring evil. We've been warned about this. The young man was warned about this back in chapter 4. And uh, the parents warning the children to stay away from this kind of crowd. Do not enter the path of the wicked. Do not proceed in the way of evil men. Avoid it. Do not pass by it. Turn away from it and pass on. Don't even play with it. Don't, Don't think you can just venture down that path just a little ways. No. If you step on that path, you're, you're, you're walking with them. For they cannot sleep unless they do evil. They are robbed of sleep unless they make someone stumble. You realize how compelling this is? What is it that keeps you awake at night? What is it that keeps them awake at night? Okay, What is it whereby the soul is so preoccupied with, with its pursuits, with its objects, with its devotions? The soul is so locked in on these things that it carries a, uh, a physiological consequence. The lack, of, the lack of sleep. Anyway, that's a pretty uh, severe warning there. For they eat the bread of wickedness and they drink the wine of violence. But the path of the righteous is like the light of the dawn that shines brighter and brighter until the full day, the perfect day. Oh, I want to start over and teach this chapter again. Remember this chapter? There's some neat things here. This is a personal promise for any individual believer that's walking the path of righteousness. It's also an eschatological promise because the perfect day is is that thousand generations that follows the millennium. We've got other other issues there. But we want to be on the the path. We want to be on the straight and narrow. All right, Proverbs 12.12. The wicked man desires the booty of evil men, but the root of the righteous yields fruit. Again, there's wickedness, there's the desire. And this desire is a hunger, this desire is an appetite. This desire, and we've got a lot of desires. And, uh, and if you want to use the word desire or appetite or, or hunger or whatever expression you want to use, they're all appropriate in the sense of what our soul hungers for. And that's why we want to train our soul to hunger and thirst after righteousness and, and to to feast on the, the, the pure milk of the Word like newborn babes, to lust after the pure milk of the Word. If we're not feeding the right kind of hunger, then we're going to be feeding the wrong kind of hunger. And that's, uh, that's a principle as well. And so, um, you know, the, the booty of evil men and the, the, uh, the nature of fallen humanity that just takes what it wants and might makes right. And, uh, and all these things, it's righteousness that says no. It's righteousness that that has the, the fairness and the equity and the standards of God that, uh, that reject this way of thinking. Psalm 
right, Psalm 36 is a Davidic psalm. Transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. So this guy's really out there. And uh, he's becoming brazen in his pursuits of wickedness. No fear of God. It flatters him in his own eyes concerning the discovery of his iniquity and the hatred of it. Doesn't care. If he gets exposed, no big deal. The words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. He has ceased to be wise and to do good. He plans wickedness upon his bed. <laughs> so, you know, as if you didn't get enough done this day, uh, you, you just lay there and keep yourself up late planning what tomorrow's wickedness might bring. You know, you, you talk about consumed saying. And we've got to be careful. There's an aspect here that, that you know believers better be warned about. There's a, there's a tendency, I think humanity has a vulnerability with this. I think um, God has designed humanity to be loyal. He has designed humanity to be um, uh, consistent. That part of what He's designed us to be is uh, dedicated. And in, of course, until sin comes into the picture, But ideally we should be loyal to God, we should be dedicated to Him, we should be consistent in our worship, consistent in our studies, we should be um, faithful. But then sin comes along and what happens? All these principles, all this design of humanity becomes corrupted and perverted. And so now, yeah, we're we're consistent, all right, we're just consistent sinners. And we're, uh, we're loyal, all right, because we're fanatically loyal in our addictions. See, this is why the fallen body is so addictive. In any event, he plans wickedness upon his bed. He sets himself on a path that is not good. He does not despise evil. That's a pretty terrible lost estate there. Psalm 52, 1 through 4. Another psalm of David. A maskil, a, a contemplative song. These are, these are ones that they, they make you think and you're commanded to think. Contemplate these. When Doug the Edomite came and told Saul and said to him, it's probably pronounced Doeg. I just like teasing Doug every time. And Doug's not even with us today, but I like I've been teaching this as Doug the Edomite ever since. Anyway, when David has come to the house of, Ab- of Ahimelech, why do you boast in evil, almighty man? The loving kindness of God endures all day long. Your tongue devises destruction like a sharp razor, O worker of deceit. You love evil more than good, falsehood more than speaking what is right. You love all the words that devour, O deceitful tongue, but God will break you down forever. So there's judgment coming. And when David composes this, he's addressing this as a, as a, as a uh, song dedicated to the destruction of Doug the Edomite. And uh, it's good that we, uh, we can learn from these, alright? There's someone you want to Someone you want to write a song for and their destruction, all right? Just leave it in the hands of God and then, uh, and then pray for their repentance so that God doesn't have to bring about that destruction. See, this is, what we, this is how we adapt the imprecatory prayers of Psalms for the church age, age of grace. We love our enemies and we pray for those that persecute you. And uh, I don't see anywhere in the New Testament where the imprecatory Psalms are, are replicated in the church age for, uh, for our enemies. All right, then uh, the complete absence of grace illustrated in a couple of places, illustrated by 
uh, Nabal, the fool, in 1 Samuel 25. Good thing he had Abigail, the wife, to bail him out because uh, she was a grace believer and a powerful hero. Nabal was a fool. And uh, let's just read the, we're running out of time here. But there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And it came about while he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. And the, the doctrine of Carmel is interesting too. Carmel and the mount, mountain at Carmel and the battle where Elijah um, uh, fought with the, the prophets of Baal and um, the, the language of the land of Satan before his fall in Jeremiah 4, that uses the Carmel vocabulary, the fruitful land. Anyway, the man's name was Nabal and his wife's name was Abigail. The woman was intelligent and beautiful in appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his dealings and he was a Calebite. And David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, visit Nabal, greet him in my name. And thus you shall say, Have long life, peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. Nabal has the opportunity to accept the blessings of David, to receive these blessings, to accept them, to, to be I mean, think about it. What is he throwing away here? What is he despising? This is, uh, to me, this is worse than, than uh, Esau despising his birthright. This is, he's, he could receive the blessings of David. Why does he think he's so rich? Why does he, why does he think God has shined upon him? Of course, he doesn't have the capacity to appreciate it or identify it or, or even confess it for what it is. Anyway, thus you shall say, have long life, peace be to you, peace be to your house, peace be to all that you have. That's a trinity of peace pronounced upon him by the, uh, the, anointed, the anointed of the Lord. Isn't that something? And he despises it. He won't accept it. He should just be thrilled. He should be humbled. He should, uh, he should bring these men in and uh, David's honored him with ten servants and, and a threefold uh, pronouncement of peace. Anyway, I have heard that you have shearers, that your shepherds have been with us. Uh, I have heard that you have shearers, all right? Now your shepherds have been with us. We have not insulted them, nor have they missed anything all the days that they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, they will tell you. Therefore let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we have come on a festive day. Please give whatever you find at hand to your servants and to your son, David. Even the humility, calling David his son, is a recognition of Nabal's older age and David's younger age. And, um, and it's not legalism and it's not manipulation. It's not anything carnal. It's not a guilt trip. Where uh, some people, you can read the, into that and kind of find a little bit of that in there, but, but you're reading into that and you're reading into that with a carnal mind yourself. So flush that, okay? Uh, when, when David is, is celebrating, he already started with the blessings up front. He's already given a threefold blessing up front. Then he's recounting the grace that he's shown towards Nabal. The fact that David's men were in the area. It's by the grace of God that David's men 
didn't plunder Nabal's uh, flocks. <laughs> you know, isn't that a grace thing? Because another mercenary bandit could have come along and plundered. And, and, but no, by the grace of God, can you imagine you're out there at night, you're watching your sheep, and here come these, these uh, armed men. And, uh, you know, you're thinking, uh-oh, we're in trouble. But then you find out, oh, wait a minute. These men are serving David. Oh, we're good. Okay? You know, what a relief. What a relief. You know, the, the good men with guns are not to be feared. It's the bad men with guns. And then if there are bad men with guns, you want the good men with guns. Okay? And uh, there's just principles of, of, of truth all throughout these, these verses we're looking at here this morning. Anyway, this is a, a, st- a statement of grace. Let my young men find favor in your eyes. Now it's Nabal's opportunity to reply with grace. Now Nabal can respond. Nabal can testify. Nabal can pronounce a blessing. Nabal can identify, behold the anointed of the Lord. What a thrill for me to provide for you. I'm, I'm going to put words in his mouth now. I'm going to, what if Nabal was a believer? What if Nabal was not so foolish? What if Nabal could respond in positive volition? He might say something like this. He might say, behold the servant of the Lord. Who am I that the anointed of God should come to my house? What a blessing for me that I can offer up some sheep, I can offer up some wool, I can offer up some, some gold. I can, you know, he wasn't asked, wasn't given an amount. David didn't say, you owe me 10%. David just said, show some grace. Celebrate with me. It's a festive day. Anyway, when David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal concerning all the words in David's name, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants and said, who is David? (laughs) David who? Who do you guys think you are? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants today who are each breaking away from his master. What an insult. Just a roving band of thugs, a roving, roving band of mercenaries. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have slaughtered for my shearers and give it to men whose origin I do not know? I mean, these are fighting words. This is just, these are blatant insults. Telling, uh, telling men of, of nobility that they are of, of um, dubious origin. Okay? So David's young men retraced their way back and went back and they came and told him each according to these words. And David said to his men, each of you gird on his sword. Now David's on the verge of doing a tremendous evil too. And we, we read this chapter sometimes and we think that Abigail saved Nabal. No, she actually saved David. Because David would have gotten revenge. His carnality was ready to take it. So David says, all right, saddle up. <laughs> Gird your sword. Each man girded his sword and David also girded his sword. About 400 men went up behind David while 200 stayed with the baggage. One of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife. And this is marvelous. And she has the grace and she comes out. The men testify to her about David's soldiers. And they were a wall to us both by night and by day. All the time we were with them tending the sheep. They actually were very pleased to have David's men in the neighborhood. It's like the, uh, you ever read the Tolkien's accounts of, of the, the Shire? 
and how the hobbits were at peace in the Shire. Do you know why the hobbits were at peace in the Shire? Because Aragorn and the rangers were watching the borders and, and uh, keeping the, the orcs and the evil men and, and everything else away. And they didn't know. Anyway, Nabal didn't know. David's men were protecting his sheep. So anyway, Abel comes out here. She has words of wisdom for David. And uh, David responds. Abigail saw David, falls on her face before him, bows herself to the ground, fell at his feet. On me alone, my Lord, be the blame. And let your maidservant speak to you and listen to the words of your maidservant. So she is accepting the guilt. She's becoming a kinsman redeemer. She is willing to be the victim of his wrath, to be the propitiation for her house. Do not let my Lord pay attention to this worthless man, Nabal. For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. Nabal means foolishness and he's rightly named. Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives, as Jehovah lives, as Yahweh lives, you realize the divine viewpoint she has and the blessing she has here? As the Lord lives, as your soul lives, since the Lord has restrained you from shedding blood and avenging yourself by your own hand, you weren't about to do that, were you, David? <laughs> wink, wink. Now then, let your enemies and those who seek evil against my Lord be as Nabal. And let this gift which your maidservant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who accompany my Lord. So she has grace to extend that Nabal didn't have. Please forgive the transgression of your maidservant. Now, she has nothing to be forgiven of, but because she's accepted the guilt... Now she does have something to be forgiven of and she's asking David to forgive that guilt. For the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord and evil will not be found in you all your days. Anyway, this is a tremendous ministry. I love this chapter. I've taught it several times and she saves him. And David admits that. You get down to David's response. David says to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me. It's a divine appointment that God saved David's life by sending Abigail, the right person in the right time. Blessed be your discernment and blessed be you who have kept me this day from the bloodshed and from avenging myself by my own hand. So he blesses God and he blesses her twice so that he doesn't uh, avenge himself with his own hand. You know, vengeance is mine, I will repay. We don't take our own vengeance. Leave room for the wrath of God. I'm out of time. Uh, Isaiah 32, 6 through 8. Yeah, well, I'll save this for next week. Next week we'll finish uh, uh, soul, then we'll get to house and sacrifice, and then we'll talk about, uh, we'll move on to uh, verses 5 and 6, the plans of a man's heart. All right. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for truth. Thank you for the privilege that we have to, to glean these principles. Father, we don't want to be wicked. We want to cast off the old man, put on the new man. We see how much damage is done to the soul of the wicked, how much damage we do to ourselves when we prolong our carnality. And Father, um, I do pray for our brothers and sisters that uh, we're struggling with these struggles. Father, uh, help us to keep short accounts. Help us to stay in fellowship. Help, us, help to repair the damage that we've done in the soul damage of our own prolonged darkness. Thank you for being faithful, Father. I thank you and praise you. And again, pray for our president, pray for our nation, 
uh, in the coming days. You are the God of truth. I pray that you expose truth for what it is, expose the liars for who they are, and Father, uh, accomplish all your good pleasure. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, thank you, folks.